Well, we are, uh, we're, we're already in the thick of it. If you uh, haven't felt it, we are in the thick of it. And you might think to yourself, okay, why are we going through this obscure Old Testament prophet? Um, and I'll give you t- at least two reasons, way too many to count, but I'll give you at least two reasons. Number one, we need to be more literate on the Old Testament. So not only are we going to go through Habakkuk, but come the new year, we are planning on starting the book of Genesis. Uh, And so we need to be more literate in the Old Testament. We want to be more literate. And this is a great place to start because it is fitting and timely for our day. Um, If you haven't noticed, our world's in a little bit of disarray over the last couple of years. And um, and so it was for the prophet Habakkuk. Um, That's number one. The other thing is uh, not just that we need to have some literacy, but if if we're going to be people that are devoted to prayer, why not look at one of the prayer lives of one of his leaders? And if we're going to be a, a people that are devoted to missional living, what kind of place do we want to be? Here's been my prayer for us, that we would be a resilient people, that we would be no longer satisfied with simple and shallow Christian platitudes, because that will not do for the world around us. It won't do. So God is good, let, let go and let God, Jesus take the wheel, won't work. It hasn't worked in your life, what makes you think it's going to work in the life of your neighbor? Instead, we need something deeper, and Habakkuk will lead us into these deeper waters led by the Spirit, and so we follow. If you don't know, we are in an age of deconstruction. If you have not known that word, let me introduce you to that word. Deconstruction simply means this. It is the process of reexamining the faith that you grew up in. I woke up this morning deeply troubled for my own children, and therefore deeply troubled for yours, but they'll grow up especially my kids, growing up in a pastor's home, and they just hear the gospel again and again. And they see their dad struggle with frustration and anger and short temper again and again. And then they also experience their dad come to them and repent. And go, I'm just, I am so sorry about that. But not with really like any comic relief, but just like, man, I'm just really sorry. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little afraid that they're just going to look at me as a leader and go, man, there's just so much hypocrisy in my own dad. How can this be true? You see, that's the age of deconstruction. The age of deconstruction looks at the the faith that we grew up in, and all of a sudden you start to re-examine your faith that you grew up in. You dissect its beliefs, its practices, and you often reject them until you also reject Jesus altogether. The deconstructionists of our day look at the hypocrisy in the church. They look at the short, shallow answers to hard questions. They look at apathy to social justice issues. They look at us clinging to what is what they believe to be an outdated book. And why do they think it's outdated? Because we don't treat it as seriously as we need to. We don't actually know what this says. And so they look at us and they wonder, well, you don't even believe in what you say you believe. This can't be true. If you don't know this, we're on the road to deconstruction in our own families if you haven't seen that. But it's not just apathy or hypocrisy or shallow answers. It's also also the abuse of authority from pastors and priests for many decades now. And all of this leads us all to believe that there are huge gaps in what we believe and how we live. To which I say, of course there are. We're human. If you don't know this, um, there's a band called King's Kaleidoscope. And uh, in 2014, their church fell. And it was called Mars Hill. That was the church that they were a part of up in Seattle. And that was where they led worship. And And the leader of that band was really the only one standing after the fall of that church. His entire band fell away from the faith, deconstructed, and no longer are practicing Christians. And he stands alone, and now they have a whole new band, and he continues to hopefully sing the gospel well. 
This is not just something that um, happens in Seattle. It's happening here. It's happening amidst us. And so I want to say this. What we try to do every week is deconstruct. This is what you think the Bible says, but this is what it actually says. And then we reconstruct. Okay, so every week we deconstruct and we reconstruct. So I want to invite you into the process, the healthy process of deconstruction. But I also want to invite you to the full process of reconstruction, of going, but this is really what Jesus believed. And oh my gosh, if that's what he said, and if that's how he lived, then I need to repent. Not all y'all need to repent, I need to repent. I was talking to my friend at the softball fields a few weeks ago. I've hinted at this, and I was telling her about, well, this is what Jesus actually believed, though. And he, would, he wouldn't say that it's okay to keep sinning in this way. He wouldn't say that it's okay, oh, it's fine, you just keep on sinning that way. No, he would say, like he said to every person, quit sinning and follow me. And that person goes, well, then no one can get to heaven. And I said, exactly. Exactly why he came. See, the shallow answer has to end in the greater answer of Jesus. And Habakkuk is going to lead us into these waters. So how do we reconstruct? Habakkuk, again, is going to help us, right? He is going to lead us into an uncomfortable place. It is a place where there are no easy answers. It is a place where God loves to lead us so that we can swim and know that we can make it in deeper waters. There are more treacherous paths ahead. Through the valley. Through the valley of continuing to pray for kids and not receiving them. To the valley of wondering when this miserable job is going to give way to another. Through the valley of illness and losing the loved ones through an illness. Through the valley of pandemic. Through the valley of economic trial. Through the valley of that marriage that just can't seem to find its footing. It's through those valleys that God will make good on the promise that he will be present. He will lead us in the presence of our enemies. And when we get to the other end, through the valley of the shadow of death, we will find a better place than we ever knew existed. But the question is, will we trust him through that valley? So what's so disorienting for Habakkuk? And I do want to give you some history here today. I know that you probably didn't come today going, ooh, a history lesson. But good news, church is often not what you think it is. So today, what is so disorienting for Habakkuk? And, and, I, and here kind of what's going on in the background of Habakkuk, okay? He's watching the news of his day. He's, he's fixed to his, his news feed. He's looking around, and he's asking difficult questions to our God. He doesn't post it on his social media. He doesn't go out and, and go, how dare God do these things? Can you believe that God's people are this way? No, he instead goes to the appropriate place, church, and he prays. I know that's like overrated today, but he prays. He prays to the Lord. So this is what's going on. This is the news feed of his day. Habakkuk is likely dated. If you want to take notes, this is fine. If you're a student in here, we provide journals over there. We also provide listening guides over on our connection guide. And I won't be offended at all if you go up and get one and get a pen. Matter of fact, might as well do that. If you're an adult, you could do that if you want. But I would encourage you to take notes because this is the kind of stuff you look back on and go, oh, that makes sense. I wrote in my Bible. This probably likely happens in between 609 and 605 B.C., and you think to yourself, well, that's no big deal. I don't really care. But it is important because there's a flurry of political, national, and religious unrest during this time. You see, if you don't understand this, God created the nation of Israel. And when he did so, he gave them a king because they wanted a king. And so King Saul came, and then King David came, 
came, and then King Solomon came. And you might think, okay, well, those are only the three kings that, that served over the nation of Israel. And that might be true. The unified nation of Israel only had three kings. And you might think, okay, well, I've read a lot in the Bible, and I get to this part in the Bible, and things just get confusing in the historical books of Kings and Samuel and Chronicles, and you get, just get lost. Well, let me help. You see, when David sinned against Uriah and he took Bathsheba as his wife, one of the punishments was that the sword will never leave the household of David, meaning there will be strife and enmity throughout all of the house of David. That would be Israel. And sure enough, one of Solomon's sons starts to break apart the kingdom. And there's rebellion, and there's no consensus on who the king shall be. So what happens? The kingdom splits. Y'all church splits have been a part of God's people from the beginning. And so there is Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Okay, so when you start reading through the Bible and you go, Judah has this king and Israel has this king, you go, I don't know what's going on. Let me just summarize. For 241 years, Israel was a nation. They never had one good king after they split. Never one. They were all evil. Okay, and then during that time, Judah, because they had some righteous kings, they lasted a bit longer into the 580s, okay? This book is happening right in the midst of when Judah is about to go down. Judah is about to be taken. So if you don't know, Israel, if, is there a map that's going to be put up? Is it already up? Let's put the map up, all right? There's a map, all right? You got Israel in the north. You see Israel in the north down here? I know it's not really in the north, but you can see it. And then Judah just below that. Okay, they're separating for us. Good history. This is in the back of your ESV Bible. They're separating for you what's going on. Israel's just to the north. Judah is to south. It's to the south. Now, what you're going to see is you got Assyria and Babylonia, two important nations, also known as Iraq and Iran. Always been turmoil in that part of the world, y'all. So what you find is that Assyria is this, is this like, I mean, they are war people. They take over the earth, okay? They're actually the ones that take over Israel in the north. In 722, 722 um, Israel falls to Assyria. Now, there's a time period here where Assyria takes over. If you want to read more about that, you can read about that in the book of Jonah. That was the enemy there. But all of a sudden, there is a time in the Bible where I ask you to read 2 Kings 23, 24, 2 Chronicles 34. If you read any of that, you go, okay, start, some of this is start, starting to click a little bit. What you find is that in the south, there's a pharaoh named Necho. Okay, you see Egypt? Egypt's down in the south. Babylonia is taking over Assyria historically. They're about to take over the world. A guy named Nebuchadnezzar is about to take over the world, and including Judah. And these are the political national events that are happening in the background of Habakkuk. So all of a sudden, God's favorite people, the, the northern tribe of Israel, the northern tribes of Israel, have been taken down by Assyria. Years later, generations later, Babylonia takes over Assyria. And Necho in the south is on his way to, take, to help Assyria take on the Babylonians. Okay, And this is important for us because Necho is in the south. You see, Israel is always in this disputed part of the world. No one ever goes into the Arabian Desert. That's where you go to die. You just certainly aren't going to bring uh, an army through the Arabian Desert. Everything goes through Israel. God ordained it to have this very fertile, very important stretch of land for God's people. So Necho is rising up, going into Assyria to help fight off the Babylonians. And King Josiah, 
who is the, Judah, uh, the king of Judah at the time, who had brought in great reforms to Judah. There were evil kings. He had brought in great reforms. He was instituting sacrifices, temple worship. They celebrated the Passover for the first time, the way that it was intended, for generations underneath Josiah. And then what historians believe is that Josiah went out against Nico in some sort of suicide mission. They don't really know what was into him, other than probably a little bit more arrogance than what needed to be. Like, I've done all these reforms, surely God will be on my side. He goes out to Nico, and Nico goes, I got no beef with you. I'm not even going to pick a fight with you. I'm trying to get to Assyria to fight with the Babylonians. And, goes, and Josiah goes, I don't care. I want to fight anyways. So he goes out there. He's cloaked into a, like a regular, like an infantryman's uniform, and he dies. So Nico then takes over, and he takes two sons of Josiah, and both of those sons are evil sons. Two names that you need to make note of, if I can remember what they are. Number one was Jehoahaz. So Nico takes over Israel, and he goes, all right, your son uh, Jehoahaz is going to take over. Jehoahaz was evil. For whatever reason, Nico then took Jehoahaz back to Egypt. And he goes, all right, Jehoahaz was a bad ruler. I'm going to put Jehoiakim up in here. And Jehoiakim was another son of Josiah. And Jehoiakim was evil, evil. He killed a prophet. There's a lot of evil people in Israel. None of them killed a prophet of the Lord except for Jehoiakim. He's the one that's ruling. Now, I'm putting this all before you, not to confuse you, not to bore you, although it probably is a little bit of both, but to say there's political turmoil, there's craziness going on, and this is all verifiable in history. If you think this is some made-up book, it all verifies, it all checks out in history. That You can go all over the web and you can see what's going on throughout all of history. This is a real book, this is a real story, and this is a real prophet leading us into real deeper waters in a real faith. Josiah was killed at the Battle of Megiddo. Nico again comes in, he puts Jehoiakim in charge, and he was evil. So now Habakkuk prays. And he prays to a God in, in, in the midst of frustration, in the midst of disorientation, in the midst of difficulty. It is God's favorite nation on the earth. And God is somehow not answering his prayer. See, the question that Habakkuk is going to lead us into is, can God intervene in the world's history? If so, can he also intervene into my history? Can he intervene in my story? And if so, what will he do and how will he deal with disappointment? How will we deal with disappointment, with darkness and with disorientation? So the first thing I want to say to you is this. If we're going to get through these deep and dark times, we have to pray like a prophet. Pray like a prophet. Well, you might go, well, how does a prophet pray? Well, if you look at verses 2 through 4, I mean, he's so desperate for what's going on. All of his prayers are just whittling into one word. I don't know if you've ever been so desperate with the Lord, but you just can only say one word. And his one word is violence. Violence. That's all he can utter up to the Lord. He just goes, violence, can you not see what's going on with your favorite people, O Israel? And if we put this in today's language, don't, don't think about the U.S. Think about the church. Can you not see what's going on in the church right now? Can you not see the abuse by leaders? Can you not see the disorientation of God's people? Can you not see the deconstruction? Can you not see the chaos? Can you not see the unfaithfulness, O Lord? Just violence, injustice. 
When will you intervene? See, that's the heart of Habakkuk. He's frustrated. He wants to know why is it that God is not intervening. And he comes next in the long line of people that approach God in this way. If you look at Moses' life, he goes to the Lord and says, if you make me lead these people for one more minute, kill me. Oh, there might be a reason why my son's name is Moses. It's not y'all. Maybe it's me. But he's just honest, y'all. Jeremiah complained to the Lord, the book of Job. Have you read that? The whole book of Job. David and the other psalmists asked God why he seems so far away. Thomas in the New Testament is known as Doubting Thomas. We read this last week. It was the disciples on the top of the mountain. And when they saw him, some worshipped and others doubted. Friends, if you are doubting, if you are wondering if God will accept just a half-hearted prayer, yes, throw it up. Like as far as it'll go, it might only go just above your head, but he'll hear it. It may never even really come out of your mouth, but he'll hear it. Pray like the prophet, though we may be frustrated, though everything may just whittle down into one word, Lord. Frustration, violence, injustice. God is hearing our prayer. May we be a people that continue to pray like a prophet. He couldn't stand it anymore. He wanted God to intervene, to redeem God's people, to reform his nation, just like he had seen under the king Josiah, to remake the temple as he had seen under that good king. And he prayed and he longed. And you know what God did? Nothing. That's why he's desperate. That's why he's frustrated. See, behind the scenes here, this is just maybe the last or coming to the end of a long history of Habakkuk being in the temple of the Lord and asking the Lord to intervene and it being a real long time. So no wonder he says, how long? How long am I going to cry out to you before you hear me? You been praying that lately? How long until you establish justice? How long until you take care of this? How long until you make this right? You're not alone. He sees the injustice. He sees the difficulty. He knows the darkness. He knows how disoriented we are. He knows. But he does he also doesn't remain silent. See, if we're going to pray like a prophet then the hard part about this is that we have to receive God's puzzling providence. Pray like a prophet. Easy to do. That might even be seen as some shallow Christian platitude. You've got to pray. You just pray. You've got to pray about it. But not if you pray like him. Not if you be steadfast. Not if you continue to pray, just like Romans 12 said. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. See, that's like praying like one of God's leaders. But we also have to receive God's puzzling providence. I'm going to read verses 5 and 6 so that we can see what it is that's so puzzling. What's going on here? Look, among the nations, God is answering. So Habakkuk is praying in verses 2 through 4. Now God is answering that prayer in 5 through 11. Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And most worship songs end there. I'm going to see you do it again. Most of them end there. But if we would continue 
in the full story of God's answer. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. I'm sorry. Say what now? That, you, that was almost the subtitle of Habakkuk for our series. Say what now? And it comes from my son Moses who looks at me when I tell him to do something. And he goes, what, what now? A what, what now? Because what he is saying, what God is saying right here, I'm going to raise up for you the Babylonians. The ones that are terrible. You say violence, Habakkuk, and I go, you don't haven't even seen violence yet. You see, God's puzzling providence is often an answer to our prayer that we do not want. So what do we do when God is silent? We keep praying, but what do we do when his answer isn't what we'd hoped? And that's really the heart of things, y'all. We're going to deconstruct. We're going to walk away. And we say, that's really hard, Lord. I don't know if I want to believe in that God. Or will we trust verses 1 and 5? Behold, I am doing a thing in your day. That's why the worship songs end there. Because that's where we need to end. Behold, I am doing a new thing. You watch. You see. It's going to happen. It may not be what you hoped. It may not be what you preferred. And all of our lives give testimony to this fact. The Bible doesn't hide it. Perhaps we shouldn't either. All of our lives gives testimony to the fact that, man, what we had hoped for just didn't quite happen. The, the prayer that I just prayed, I had a prescription for how I think that prayer should be answered, Lord. And now you're not giving me the prescription that I came to the pharmacy for. Man, that's rough. Well, what was it so, so difficult, right? The Babylonians were rough people. I'll just give you a little history here. Little history, right? The Babylonians, this is not hyperbole in verses 6 through 11. It is real. The Assyrian Empire, again, was already coming to a close, as hinted by Nico having to help the Assyrians against the Babylonians. Babylon overcame Assyria, which is a, a, a feat in of itself, at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. I'm telling you that because it's verifiable. The Assyrians were the ruthless foes in Jonah's day, and they paved the way for Babylon, who learned some of their worst war tactics from Assyria, including the illusions in verses 7 through 11, which say this, they are dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves, a.k.a. they have no morality. They made up justice. Whatever you think is morally right and morally wrong, they don't care. They weren't a part of the Geneva Convention. There are no rules for how they wage war. Their horses are swifter than leopards. They're fierce. Look at what God is preparing him for. Here's, here's God's answer. My favorite people, Israel, are going to fall by the hands of a more evil nation. Their horses are swifter than leopards. They're more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen proudly press on. Their horsemen came from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward or set forward towards the battle. They gather captives like sand. I don't know if you've ever been able to capture sand, but you can get a whole lot with a little effort. At kings, ha, I don't care what kings say. Rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They look at a fortified city like Jerusalem, and they're going to pile it up, pile up the earth and take it. And they sweep like the wind and go on. And just when you thought they valued your city, they don't care about it. They just want to conquer you because their God is their strength. 
You see, the war tactics from Assyria were rough. It's like a scene out of Lord of the Rings, right? They seized fortified cities with ease, taking the earth. This is what they would do. When, when, when verse 10 says they pile up earth and take the fortified cities, they were known, this is like ingenious, they were known for tunneling under the wall of your city. And while they're tunneling under the wall, they made a huge ramp, and then they would put what they would call war machines on. And this is a picture of a war machine. They would put war machines on these ramps, and then they would batter the gate of your city. And if you look, like this is, this is real-time stuff. This is a historical artifact right here. Okay? You look at this war machine. you got all these people that are going against this little bitty wall over here. You see how it's portrayed? Real big war machine, real tiny little city. This was brand new in warfare. These are what the, uh, the Babylonians were known for, and they would take over fortified cities. So they tunnel up the tunnel underneath your, your city gate. They would put a war machine against the gate, and then they'd put another one on the ramp, the earthen ramp, that would go up the walls, and they would just ride that thing and just kill everybody. If they killed you, or perhaps you were wounded, perhaps you were lucky enough to survive the fight, then they would take your body. Listen, y'all, this is rough stuff. Sorry for the little ears, but this is real true stuff. They would take your body, they would impale you outside the city gates, and at night they would light you on fire. These are the Babylonians. This is God's answer to prayer. If you were able to hold out for a number of days, they would wait you out. They would starve you. They would make you suffer so much on the inside of the city gates that whatever suffering you had was far greater than whatever they could give you on the outside. So eventually, you'd open the gates. They'd come in and they'd take you. And they'd take all the rulers, and this is what happened with Daniel, right? The book of Daniel is all full of this. They took all the rulers and they'd ship them off to Babylon, leading no leadership in the city. Just the peasants, the ones that had, probably were illiterate, had no real good job. Those are the only ones that were left. You see, Habakkuk hearing this, y'all listen, if you think this is far off, this is going to be hard to hear. Habakkuk hearing this would have been like Americans, especially red-blooded Republican Americans, Pecan Grove kind of Americans, hearing God's judgment on us going, ISIS is going to come. And they're going to take you. And you hear what they do in Iraq. And you hear what they do to women and children and to Christians. And that's God's answer? Well, no wonder we have to somehow receive God's puzzling providence. I don't know what answer he has given you to your prayers, but I'm going to bet you it's not a one-to-one -one ratio on the things that you'd ask for. I'm going to bet you it's a lot harder than just fix it. I'm going to bet you it's a lot more difficult to receive than just heal that person. Instead, life in a fallen world doesn't turn out the way that we had hoped. A lot of days. I mean, this morning, I'm delivering news to one of our brothers here that another one of our brothers has died of COVID this last week. That's not what we'd hoped for. Lord, you, you intervene on their behalf. He's, he's, a, he's a dad of four young kids. Would you intervene? Would you be merciful? Would you help? Lord, help us. And the answer is no. What do we do with that God? 
What do we do with that answer? What do we do in that kind of darkness? Habakkuk shows the way. If we'll look, we don't just see all the terrible things that could happen and have happened in history for Israel. You've got to remember, this is God's chosen people, Israel, that he's judging in this way. Because they're, they're sinful. They've forgotten their one true love of, of Christ, of Jesus. They didn't know his name at the time, but they're sinful. They'd forgotten. And this was God's way of judging them for their waywardness. But what do you do when... What do you do with a God who doesn't do what you thought he would? And what do you do when you remember that Isaiah 55 says this? Like, where do you go when you hear this? Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens, as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Where do we go? Where do we run to? What do we do? Well, I'll give you one final solution. This is going to sound like a Christian platitude. Believe God at his word. We believe God at his word. You see, that's the word we have to believe. That is, his, his ways are higher than our ways. We've got to believe that. We've got to believe that he's doing something that's beyond our recognition, beyond our understanding, beyond what we would do, beyond and outside of the definition that we would call fair. Lord, haven't I done all these things? I mean, I'm a prophet of the Lord, Habakkuk might say. I've been in the temple day and night praying all night long, and your answer is what? Surely you're playing favorites here. Surely you've forgotten your covenant, oh Lord. But where do we go with these injustices when life doesn't turn out the way we would hope, with these questions, with these doubts, what can we do when God operates out of, out of, outside of what we see as fair? I mean, where else can you go? It's the God of the universe. Where else would you want to go? When we lived in Dallas for a short time, uh, my wife and I conceived a child that we, we were not trying to conceive. And I remember being at Panera Bread with one of my friends, and she called me and she goes, hey, I think I just had a miscarriage. And I was like, what are you talking about? So I rushed home. I picked her up. She was in the driveway. We went straight to the ER. And sure enough, that's what happened. And um, I remember having a, having a dream the next night. Or maybe several days later. I don't really remember this. But the dream was me standing in front of God, who was a tornado. And I remember staring in, into that tornado and going, her life's been hard enough. You want, you want to take her down? You got to go through me. You got to go through me, Jesus. Like I'm some tough guy, right? Like he can't do that. But I was angry. And that prayer still was, it's still in me a lot of days. There's some good to that and there's some bad to that. I like to defend, especially those that I love, especially you all. That's not the point. The point was during the time when I'm having dreams about me defending my wife against God, who I perceive to now be my enemy, my wife went through a season of not praying. You see, she couldn't pray to the one who had saved her because of the disappointment, because of the disorientation, because of the darkness that she was walking into. 
And I felt that as leader of the home. And I wanted to defend my bride against who I now was defying or defining as my enemy. And then something miraculous happened. It had nothing to do with kids for a while. But the miraculous thing that happened was my God, like my God changed my wife's heart. It only took two or three days, she said. We were talking about this over the weekend. That she went through this period of like, I cannot pray to you. I don't trust you anymore. You took away something that I wanted that I didn't even know I wanted until you gave it to me only to take it away. And you know what happened? She came to the realization, where else am I going to go? Who else can I trust? Who else is good? Who else is all-powerful? Who else is all-wise? There's nowhere else to go, even though he doesn't do what we would hope for him to do in the time that we had hoped that he would do it, in the way that we would prefer for him to do it. He's the only one we got. And he's good, because he says it. We just, we just did it in our confession of faith, which I didn't know that was going to happen, but it's the same verse. It's the same verse in Psalm 100. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. He's powerful. That's what Ephesians 1 talks about, where he puts Jesus high above every throne, power, and authority. And he's wise, Psalm 145 says. Great is our Lord. He's abundant in power, and his understanding is beyond all measure. Will we trust him when he says things like in Hosea 2.14? The nation of Israel is again falling. This is the northern part of Israel in Hosea. They're falling. And he says these hard words. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, Israel. I will bring her into the wilderness. And there I will speak tenderly to her. We want the intimacy that God promises without the wilderness. And friends, they, they usually do not happen apart from one another. Will we be a people that are resilient enough to follow God into the wilderness where we can hear Him? Where, we can, where He promises to speak tenderly to us. Where He promises to make himself available to us in new and in intimate ways. In this passage, he talks about being our husband. That's an intimate language we will only find in, in the desert, in the wilderness. Will we trust him at his word? You see, the theme of Habakkuk will be in verse 2-4, which we read, of course. It says, the righteous shall live by his faith. What are we going to trust? Will we trust the God who says in Habakkuk 1, look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, it's okay to go through those, those, those trials and troubles and doubt. Read Psalm 113. Read Habakkuk 1. How long, O oh Lord? You journey through that wilderness courageously knowing that God will shepherd you. And do so knowing that the end of that journey, my prayer for you, will be the same at the end of Psalm 13. It will also be the same at the end of Habakkuk 3.18. Yet I will rejoice 
in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. When the world is crumbling around us, when church leaders disappoint us, when, when God himself disappoints us, he is still the, 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 the fountain of joy because he is the God of our salvation. I pray, I pray for you all. I pray for us as a church family. I pray for the church worldwide that we would be a people resilient. And when you see people throwing away the bride of Christ, ah, believe in Jesus, just not his people, bring them. Go to them. Speak tenderly to them as God has spoken tenderly to you in your wilderness because that's where they're headed. And remind them that God is with them. Remind them of the promises of Psalm 23 that he is our shepherd in the valley. Not just in the mountaintops, in the valley. And he will lead us. So I leave you with this. Habakkuk 1.5 is quoted in Acts chapter 13 by Paul. Which is, behold, there's something going on here that you can't even understand. And he's referencing the coming of Jesus. That he came in a way that none of us would understand. You see, Habakkuk has a beautiful gospel message. Though we may have expected him to do one thing, he often does another. See, though God sent Babylon to judge Israel for their sins, God has judged his son for our sins by sending him into this Babylon to die for us. Though injustice and wickedness was once our desire, much like the Babylonians, much like Judah, God, the just and justifier, sent his son Jesus, the innocent one, to be guilty on our behalf. Just as Habakkuk was challenged to stay the course, to believe beyond what he saw, we also will be beckoned to have faith beyond our feelings. For in so doing, we will become a resilient people in our faith. No matter what, no matter what kind of warfare or war machines our enemy throws up the walls of our faith, it doesn't matter what befalls us if we trust God at his work while we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The promise of presence, and I pray that's enough, the promise of presence will stand. The question will be, will we take him at his word? That it's there that he's going to woo us, allure us into something new, remake us into something we never thought imagined. Will we let that good shepherd lead us, or will we take the reins of our own lives? Will we be like the Chaldeans? where we truly make our strength our own God? Will we trust him through trials? Or will we hang on no matter what? The book of Habakkuk continues. It continues to go through some difficult things. But on the other side of it is light. On the other side of it is renewal. And so I just pray as we go through this valley of Habakkuk together these next four weeks, if whatever you're going through in real life, will we hang on? He's all we got, and he's more than enough. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, these are difficult times. We don't just say that like the difficult times are out there. We say that because this world is in turmoil People of Afghanistan are, are hurting, in trouble. The people of Richmond, Texas are hurting and in trouble for different reasons. 
We're in a fallen world where nothing seems to quite turn out like the formula that we had hoped. Including you. Oh, that we would be rescued from such shallow faith. From wondering, oh, if I just do all these things, surely you're going to answer in this way. No. It often doesn't work out that way. So when we get disoriented, when we're in the dark, we can't see the light of day. We don't know what way is up or down. And there's so much darkness, we can't even see the hand in front of our face. Lord, be the light. Make good on the promise. Make good on the promise that in you there is no darkness at all. Make good on the promise that the darkness has not and will not and cannot overcome your light. Though the light shines in the darkness. So, Lord, we look for the light. We look for which way is up, and we look for the light because we know that's you. Help us see when we cannot see. Help us follow when we don't have the strength. Help us see things that are out of focus by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen.